This message is entitled, The Coming Russian Invasion of Israel, and is given by Zola Levitt. Good evening. Tonight's topic is The Coming Russian Invasion of Israel, and uh, this information is uh, taken from my book written with Dr. Thomas S. McCall of the same uh, name. And the prophecy material is taken from Ezekiel 37 to 39. So if you want to um, take your Bibles out and turn to Ezekiel 37, we'll start there. Ezekiel was one of the prophets uh, in Babylon in the uh, time that the Hebrew nation was detained there. We, we traced the history of that earlier. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had come. The second temple was destroyed. Or, I'm sorry, the first temple, Solomon's temple, destroyed in uh, 586 B.C. And uh, the Jewish nation carried off captive. And in captivity uh, was Ezekiel and also Daniel, uh, very notable. And these two prophets forecast particularly distant events uh, from Babylon. Uh, Daniel uh, gave his great 70 weeks of years prophecy uh, in which he described the coming and cutting off of the Messiah, and then went on even to the Antichrist. And, and he spoke of the Antichrist in, uh, in the chapter of Daniel 8 also. Ezekiel foresaw the recovery of Israel, the regathering of the Jews from the nations, which we've seen in our lifetimes in, in 1948, and he foresees an invasion from the uttermost north. Uh, we make that out to be Russia, and I'm going to explain that. And... Uh, this was quite a lot of foresight for somebody talking 2,600 years ago. How would you like to sit down and give me a sketch of what the politics and uh, the issues will be 2,600 years from now? Uh, <clears throat> that's, that's about what he was up against, so we know this is God talking. As we see these things fulfilled, we've seen the restoration of Israel. Uh, as we see the Russian invasion fulfilled, and we well may, uh, from down here or from up above, uh, very shortly, uh, we know that we're dealing truly with God's Word. At, uh, at the beginning of chapter 37, Ezekiel describes a peculiar vision. He says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, I'm reading right in 37.1, and carried me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. Uh, we get a picture, a, kind of a horrible picture of uh, this place full of bleach, dried out bones, very spooky. And uh, Ezekiel goes on, and he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest, as if to say God knows. <laughs> what a question, how would I know? And uh, Again he said unto me, Prophesy upon these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Okay, we have a wonderful spiritual that, uh, that accurately portrays this scene. Uh, Ezekiel was to preach to these bones. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And so on. And, and uh, in verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded, you know, some preachers talk about having to talk to a dead audience. Uh, it's really, really pretty tough one, Ezekiel. <laughs> but he prophesied exactly as God commanded, and the details are given here in verse 6. Uh, 
God will lay sinews upon the bones and flesh and skin, put breath into them, and they'll live. And he says, and you shall know that I am the Lord. All right, and Ezekiel prophesies as he was told, and all that happened. And you see it there in, in uh, verse 7 and 8. And in verse 9, God says, prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that these that they may live. You know, the wind is, is uh, like the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, it comes like a mighty rushing wind. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, uh, he reached for an analogy and he said, uh, you know, you, you feel the wind, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. Uh, the wind is something a little special. And in this prophecy, the wind brings life. These bones stand up and get skin and flesh and sinews and so on, but they're not alive until God tells him especially to call the wind. You remember Jesus calmed the wind on the Sea of Galilee. Um, verse 10, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood up upon their feet an exceeding great army. Now, that's a pretty hard vision to interpret, uh, really. It, it, says, it says a lot of things. I mean, the, the dead things can come to life is about what it says. But fortunately... Uh, in verse 11, God himself interprets the prophecy for Ezekiel, and I'm glad that he did because we'd probably have a whole bunch of ideas if he didn't. <coughs> he says, verse 11, Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off through our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. All right. Uh, verse 14, and, and I shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall you know that I, the Lord, have spoken and performed it. And the picture we get is of the, the graves of the Gentile nations in which the uh, Jewish people have been buried like so many dry bones for so long. You see, now, listeners to Ezekiel might have interpreted that uh, he's talking about this Babylonian captivity. But you'll find as you read these chapters that, that uh, the Jews were recalled out of many nations and brought back into their land. We get a picture of a lengthy and great dispersion and of them finally coming home at the end of this. And uh, <clears throat> the, the only time that the Jews were detained for any length of time and in more than one place was between the destruction of the temple in 78, the destruction of the second temple, and 1948, uh, 26 years ago, when they recovered Israel. They were detained in Babylon for some 70 years, but uh, it wouldn't satisfy the prophecy because that's just going to, well, we'll see a hundred ways as we go on how it wouldn't, but He's referring to the very recovery that we've seen. We've seen the fulfillment of this prophecy of the dry bones. Now, Ezekiel was, was uh, some kind of unusual prophet and had an unusual ministry. He uh, acted out uh, the tragedies that were going to uh, befall all of Israel. God said, uh, and this, I'm, I'm just going to quote from here and there in the book of Ezekiel, but in the 24th chapter, God told the Jews, Ezekiel is unto you a sign. According to all that he hath done, shall ye do. And he was a walking, talking example of national tragedy. He had just one disaster after another, 
and uh, we call him in the book here, he was a one-man show, a, a living drama of disaster. He shut himself up in his home, bound himself, and was struck dumb. He was ordered by the Lord to lie on his right side for 390 days, and then on his left side for 40 more days by way of demonstrating to Israel the number of years of her iniquity. Uh, his food and water was rationed by God. He lost his wife, but uh, he, was, he was not permitted to mourn. Uh, God, God told him to just uh, get up and keep on with the ministry. And people began to think he was crazy. And in a way, he has looked crazy for a long time, but he doesn't look so crazy now. Uh, in the time when they were in Babylon, there was no Russia, of course, and as, as far as they knew, the nations to the uttermost north there were, were just barbarous peoples who would have really nothing to do with Israel or the Holy Land. That was true then. It was true at the time of Christ. It was true 500 years ago. It was true 30 years ago, and even 10 years ago. But now, an invasion of Israel by Russia is, is really logical. It's something that could happen. It's something that wouldn't surprise us a bit. As, as we stressed in yesterday's talk, our army went on alert uh, during the Yom Kippur War. There was a suspicion that uh, Russian paratroops would actually enter the theater of the Middle East, and our troops really were mobilized. It was uh, quite a dramatic moment. Uh, it didn't happen, but it sure set the stage, you see. If it happened the next time, it wouldn't be very, very surprising. Well, let's go on in Ezekiel. He goes to uh, chapter 38. Uh, he says, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O God, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Well, we find uh, that Gog is the leader of a country called Magog, and by research uh, that has been done, these are the, the people that now occupy Russia, and all these names are not new. Leave back in your Bible a moment to Genesis 10, and we're going to find these names. Okay, in the second verse, uh, Genesis 10-2, uh, uh, these are descendants of Noah, the sons of Japheth, Gomer and Magog, that's two of the names that we're going to read, and here's Tubal and Meshach. And in the next generation, at the, the end of verse 3, we find the name Tagarma. Okay, keep those in mind, and, and back to Ezekiel 38, because we're going to find all those names. And, and here is what uh, the researchers uh, say happened. These initial descendants of Noah migrated, like people will, through the world, and they went different directions. Most of them went north from Israel, and they came to the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, and they made right turns or left turns to go around the water, and they kept on moving up, and they would settle. It depended on when they left, what the weather was like, where they found some good-looking uh, fields and so on, but they would settle uh, somewhere up there, and we're going to trace uh, the meaning of each of the names as we come by to see just who they might be. Now, I've said already uh, that Gog and Magog are... Uh, identified with Russia. And it, it's fascinating to see uh, what the old Schofield Bible says, uh, and not, not to just endorse the Bible, but the point is the annotator was writing far ahead of uh, the recovery of Israel, of course, 
the, the passages uh, dated by the 1909, and even ahead of the uh, Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. In other words, who was a Bible scholar uh, studying Russia and uh, what is now Israel at a time when the Jews were dispersed throughout the world and the Russians were under the war and we didn't hear much from them. They, they were no military power. They, they were no world-expanding power, really. And he says, uh, that is in the notes of this passage, Ezekiel 38 in the Schofield Bible, quote, that the primary reference to the northern powers headed up by Russia uh, all agreed. The reference to Meshach and Tubal is a clear mark of identification. And he refers to Meshach and Tubal as Moscow and Tobolsk. Those are the western and eastern capitals of Russia. Meshach and Tubal in the old days, now Moscow and Tobolsk. You see, uh, we name cities after a person. Uh, I, I bet Louisville is, is named after somebody named Louis. I don't know. Well, I'd hazard that. It's true? Okay. And uh, I come from Pittsburgh, and that's named for William Pitt. And, of course, we have many Georgetowns and Morristown and so on. And uh, this has always been the tradition. And what happened is, uh, okay, Meshach and his people went one direction, and uh, they settled uh, in a land where other languages were spoken. The, the name changed a little bit, but they began by calling their place by their founder's name. And over the years, it changes to some degree. But the sound is about the same. We even speculated whether uh, uh, the word for, uh, well, Gog is called the chief prince of the invaders, you'll see here. And uh, the Hebrew phrase translated chief prince is Nesi Rosh. And the word Rosh uh, is the adjective meaning chief or head or first, but it could easily have changed to a place named Rosh. And now, of course, I'm, I'm not saying this is certain. This is, this is theory. Our, our linguist uh, in Kona knows that, that some of this is, uh, uh, you know, difficult to certify. But here we have a place named Rosh, a place named Meshach, a place named Tubal. We have uh, uh, trouble between Israel and a place today called Russia, with the capitals Moscow and Tobolsk. And let's say it's very tempting. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, Schofield went on to say Russia and the northern powers have been the latest persecutors of dispersed Israel. Back in 1909, he observed that. If he said that in 1909, what would he say today? And, uh, and what a foresight, or let's say what a faith. He depended on this prophecy happening even though he could not conceivably foresee the existence of Israel or even Russia as a power or Russia's interest in the Middle East, he still took Ezekiel as having this meaning. I bring all this up so, so you'll understand Bible commentators today aren't just reading the newspaper and then poking their nose in the Bible and getting the two to conform somehow. This has been said even centuries ago. It would be Russia and it would be a restored Israel. We find it in uh, Wilhelm uh, Jacinius, Hebrew lexicon, 1845. Same analysis. Someday Israel will be restored and Russia will fall upon her in this invasion. And uh, that goes back way before our time. And, you know, what we must realize is we're alive now. We can see this thing. Uh, faith in a, uh, a prophecy is, is hardly not faith anymore. It's already going by facts, you see. When we started to write this book, it was uh, in 1972. And uh, my, my co-author, Dr. Thomas McCall, is, is really a very 
a brilliant researcher of these things, and he has a doctorate in Old Testament studies, and he reads the scriptures in Hebrew, and uh, he, was, he also reads a lot of current events, and he hazarded to guess that oil could be the problem someday. And we speculated, we guessed around thinking, you know, how in the world could, could uh, there get to be such a crisis situation? This was before the Yom Kippur War and so on. We didn't foresee any war, and we're not prophets, but uh, we were still working on the manuscript when the war broke out and then the oil boycott came. We had to take our earlier chapters and change the speculations into fact. And we had this eerie feeling, we've said it in the introduction, what was prophecy when we started is now history. It has happened. You see? And the rest of it then that we're going to read here as reasonably is going to happen. It's no longer a matter of faith, it's a matter of clear thinking to see prophecy happen. In Schofield's time you had to have faith Israel would be restored. Russia would become a mighty power. Russia would be interested in Israel. You don't need that faith today. You can convince an unbeliever of this prophecy and he, he can walk away still an unbeliever and still say that fellow has something. I think Russia's going to invade Israel too. In other words, it doesn't really even require belief in God to see that this is quite a reasonable prophecy now. It wasn't for 26 centuries, but it really is now. Uh, this tracing of the place names uh, we can find in, in some writings in the past. Uh, the tribal name Magog, and I'm quoting from the book now, uh, moved northward from the Middle East, and Josephus, who was, uh, you know, a Romanized uh, historian, a Jew Jewish historian of the first century, uh, noted in his writings that Magog is called the Scythians by the Greeks. Now, the Scythian people lived north of Israel, and there were mountain people, and, and uh, they always moved northward. And since uh, he noted this at this time, you know, it's 2,000 years later, we assume the migration has continued. Now, back in Ezekiel 38, let's look up all the allies, and I'm going to kind of run them down for you. And I can only refer you uh, to the book or to Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, which also analyzes these place names for the proofs on it. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, we have Gog, who's the chief prince of the country, the land of Magog, in which are the cities Meshach and Tubal. Okay, and then going down into verse 5, 38, 5, here's some more allies. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them. All of them with shield and helmet. And in verse 6, Gomer and all his bands, the house of Tagarma of the north quarters, and all his bands and many people with thee. All right, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, Gomer, and Tagarma are the allies. Notice we've found those names, Gomer and, and Tagarma up there in Genesis 10. They too are... Uh, direct descendants of Noah way back then. Their tribes migrated and took up those place names. Uh, Persia, we know, that's Iran. And Ethiopia, of course, uh, goes by the same name. Libya also. None of those are, are really hard to believe, uh, that is, as, as adversaries of Israel. Iran is not friendly to Russia, not at this time. But the, the latest word on this, and I, people phone us and write us all the time and everything, but Russia is doing quite a bit of road building in Iran now. And of course we do some of that too, and we built the university in Iran, and everybody's courting people who have oil and doing them lots of favors and, and giving them lots of technology. But uh, the way I understood it, Russia is building a really wonderful road in Iran, considering there aren't very many cars in Iran, they're building a 10-lane expressway. And... Uh, <laughs> That, this is how I heard it. Um, anyway, a superior modern highway, and it really sounds like it's supposed to bring uh, heavier vehicles than the, than the relatively few cars they have 
uh, in Iran. But we don't know. Their position would have to change before this invasion. So uh, that's something to watch for. We would have to watch Iran uh, making treaties and lining up with Russia or becoming a greater adversary of uh, Israel. Ethiopia has been a uh, meeting place of this organization of African states and has been egged on to break relations with Israel, and they have. They, uh, these new countries uh, uh, coming up, these uh, rather new independent countries in Africa, tend to do what their bosses tell them at, at meetings, and that's how we get these UN resolutions that the Palestinians ought to make a land where there is a land already and so on. But uh, they have come out against Israel. Now, Libya you can depend on. Libya is Israel's enemy uh, and, and uh, would join Egypt and Syria, of course, in any sort of uh, war of the future. What is curious is in that sector, the Middle East, Egypt is not mentioned. Now, we, we do find this curious because Egypt is the perennial enemy of Israel. That Ezekiel could have said and the people would believe him. <laughs> they wouldn't think he was crazy for saying that. But uh, we speculate that, you know, there have, has been talk already of a merger of, of Egypt and Libya. They have uh, what each other needs, you know. Uh, Egypt has got some technology and Libya's got some population. Libya's got a lot of jet aircraft uh, that Egypt could use. Actually, if they merged, they'd be a, a better force. And conceivably, the expression Libya will express both countries by the time of the Russian invasion. We don't know. But to be fair, we're, we're trying to take every part of the prophecy into consideration. <coughs> now, Gomer, uh, we make out it's Eastern Europe. And apparently the tribe of Gomer went up, and when they came to the sea, they turned to the west, following uh, maybe the Danube River and going up that way into the fertile. Uh, we make out as Eastern Europe. And apparently the tribe of Gomer went up, and when they came to the sea, they turned to the west, following uh, maybe the Danube River and going up that way into the fertile lands. And, by, and, and all this is researched, and, and I, I can't give it to you verbally very well, but it's all in this book and in Lindsay's book and others. Uh, Gomer is held to be the Eastern European nations. Now, they are a logical ally of Russia, too, of course. Uh, they weren't uh, uh, at the time of World War II, but they are today, of course. Poland and, and uh, Hungary and Romania and Czechoslovakia and all of those uh, will jump to the call of Russia, or will have to, and uh, they will be a logical ally. Tagarma is a uh, horse country, Cossack country, uh, the southern area of Russia. And there's going to be some talk here as we go on about horses in this. This is sometimes called the horse soldier invasion, because Ezekiel sees many men on horses, and we try to take him literally in every case we can. And uh, Tagarma becomes uh, the Cossack country, which accounts for the horses. And of course, Tagarma and his tribes then went up, and they turned to the east. They must have gone along until it got pretty hot, getting over towards uh, uh, the eastern side, but uh, they stopped by fresh water and settled there. They became horsemen, and there is more horse flesh there than anywhere. This business of horses, uh, some people think that invalidates the prophecy. Ezekiel didn't know what he was talking about. But, uh, you know, the Red Chinese uh, rode horses in the Korean War in several instances, and they really fooled us. There were times that, that uh, our troops took it easy, fighting uh, North Korea, and, and the reconnaissance had said, well, there are high mountains, a lot of ice, uh, the trucks can't get through, they can't bring any personnel carriers, there will be a lull for a while. And whammo, they were there, <laughs> at dawn. They came on horses. Horses know how to run on the ground uh, of any kind, they're outfitted for that, and, and you can move a lot of troops that way if they know how to ride, and they're good horsemen. 
And uh, the best horsemen in the world come from Pagarmas, <laughs> uh, the Cossacks. And uh, we have wondered if, because of the oil shortage or some combination of events difficult to foresee, it won't be practical to, uh, to bring a horse into that invasion. Well, uh, he goes on telling about the invasion, verse 8, After many days thou shalt be visited in the latter years, thou shalt come into the land. This is um, God talking to Gog. Thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword. Okay, now that's a good, good identification of Israel. What land is seeing more war? Brought back from the sword. And is gathered out of many people. Right? I was, I was telling you in our last talk about one village is for the Russian-speaking immigrants and another one from those who speak something else and so on. Uh, as a matter of fact, I learned when I was in Israel that in that little country with uh, uh, about the same number of people as the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, they speak 80 languages. Can you imagine? And uh, uh, we saw some television uh, uh, and it switched channels and it switches languages. With a good antenna, you get international television. <laughs> in other words, you can bring in Beirut, Lebanon, and Amman, and, and Damascus, and uh, all over, uh, besides the Israeli television. And the Israeli news broadcast is in uh, at least uh, Israeli and French, and I mean Hebrew, French, English, a whole bunch of languages. And uh, when, I, when I went to my hotel that night, the people were watching a late movie in the, in the lobby, and I felt like I could watch some TV. I went in there, but it was in French with... Uh, uh, German titles or something, <laughs> oddball combination, and, and you could go around a long time and not hit your language. Uh, salesmen uh, who, who sell uh, postcards and souvenirs come down the street trying language after language on the passersby, not knowing if the person's ignoring them or just hasn't, uh, hasn't hit the language yet. <laughs> uh, so it is certainly um, gathered out of many peoples. All right, and he'll come against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations. All right, the mountains of Israel and have been always waste, that's, that's fascinating. You know, when I was in Israel, uh, I heard stories of how they had to restore the land. When they got back there, they had to plant trees one by one. And this is the land in which Solomon did so much building with domestic materials, you know, made Jerusalem a showplace and built the temple of God and built his own palace, which was a magnificent place. Uh, largely, he imported some, some wood and so forth, but largely with domestic materials, and yet they found the land denuded. <coughs> there were cases of people cutting forests who, who didn't own the land, you know, uh, for their own defense while they were occupying it. The Turks uh, at one time flooded the Sharon Valley, which is uh, spoken of in the Bible uh, as a beautiful and lush place, and they flooded it with seawater. Uh, from the Mediterranean, you probably know what that does to the land. And there today, the Israelis lovingly brought fresh water back in and cultivated it and planted what's necessary to get the soil to life again. And, and now today you can walk along and pick oranges off of there, and it's just beautiful, but uh, they found it barren when, when they uh, came back. The, it, it, as he says here, which had always been waste, well, it had been waste for literally uh, 2,000 years, well, almost 2,000 years. When I was a child in Sunday school, I used to bring a dime every Sunday to the synagogue and uh, give it for a leaf on a tree in Israel. We had a big poster on the wall of a tree with leaves, uh, leaves uh, drawn in like on a cartoon, and a dime would color in a leaf in green, and uh, or they would paste a little green leaf in. 
And when we filled the whole tree, we'd send our dimes over there, and uh, they would plant a tree for us over in Israel. One of those trees over there is mine, because in my years I brought enough dimes for a whole tree. <laughs> you know, and I almost, I almost came out even when we were over there. Uh, we went to a concert one night uh, where Leonard Bernstein was conducting the Israeli Philharmonic, which is just a wonderful, wonderful orchestra. And uh, we, the parking lot was so packed, we squeezed in down at one end of it, and we were, we were pulling into a very tight place between a car and a tree, and our guide shouted, don't hit the tree. Hit the car, don't hit the tree. There's, there's a terrific fine for hitting a tree <laughs> in Israel. If you demolished a guy's car, he wouldn't be as mad as if you hit that tree. So, of course, they, they simply had to plant the whole land. And when I went on a tour, one of my tours was uh, with a lot of folks from Oklahoma who were good farmers, and uh, they noticed uh, what had been done with the land with their experienced eye. See, when you come in on the plain, you see yellow desert, and in the middle of it, triangle-shaped orchards. They plant uh, vegetables and, and, and uh, high corn and everything right in the desert. They bring water in, and they haven't got much. The Sea of Galilee is really the only substantial source of fresh water in the whole country. They bring it in, they build up the pressure, and they irrigate the fields, and then they make a triangular-shaped um, orchard with very tall trees on the outside to block the strong sea breeze, and then in between are uh, the crops. And they have experimental farms as you drive along. I saw corn must have been uh, as high as an elephant's eyes, the song goes, it was way over my head. And, but very, you know, you, you know you're in a very arid country, and then you come to these farms that, that, that look like Nebraska. And uh, it, was, it was just terrific what they've done. But anyway, these, these are the little hints I was telling you about that, that suggest Israel, uh, I mean, the re restored Israel, so, which have always been waste, but is brought forth out of the nations. All right? And they shall dwell safely, all of them, he says about the people. All right, he says to God, Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into thy mind, and thou shalt think an evil thought. And thou shalt say, I'm in verse 38, 11, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. Now, this is another thing. The land of unwalled villages. That was impossible in Ezekiel's time. Impossible for him to say. Uh, every village had a wall. A wall is what we call national defense. Uh, they, they had to have it. But in these times, of course, we don't use a wall anymore. This is the kind of casual, stray remark we find through here that suggests the time that this was. As soon as they got back to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, of course, first they built the temple. Then they got to work on the city, and they finished the city and its wall. The wall was extremely important. There was almost no use to build a city without a wall. But he calls this the land of unwalled villages. So he's not talking about... Uh, the Israel of any other time but a time of, of, of no walls, which is, you know, almost comes right down to our time. Okay, and God is thinking in verse 11, I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil and to take a prey. All right, this business of having, uh, having neither bars nor gates, what is Israel bargaining with on the Golan Heights and the, and and in the Sinai Peninsula right today. There are no gates, there are no walls, there are no bars, there's just land. So they want a piece of it for protection, for a buffer zone. That's the best they got. They build a line in the desert. 
and they put everything they have on that line. And there are no natural barriers. Really, uh, there's some, but so few that it is without bars, without gates, without walls. And that's why they want territory. Now then, of course, the adversary says, well, you're just trying to collect land and colonize it. But it's a sorry story. You can't do very much with either the Golan or Sinai. And that isn't the idea. The idea is to have time. Should an invasion come, they have time to get to the border. Even the Yom Kippur War, the infamous uh, uh, sneak attack on, on the highest holiday, uh, they did have time so that uh, neither force could enter the country from the north or the south. But they wouldn't have had time if they didn't have those buffer zones of the Sinai and the Golan uh, where the enemy had to cover territory and the Israelis could, could get out there and defend it. <coughs> All right, he takes a spoil, verse 12, to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited. Catch that reference? Uh, the desolate places that are now inhabited. In other words, at the time my prophecy is fulfilled, they'll be inhabited. And upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, and there it is, this is not merely the return from Babylon when all the Jews were detained in one nation, but this people, the Jews, who have come back from dispersion, which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. All right, they have gotten, well, cattle and goods is... Uh, Ezekiel's expression for some prosperity and Israel has gotten that this prophecy wouldn't have worked as well at all ten years ago first of course you wouldn't have the obvious Russian animosity but you wouldn't have the focus of the world on Israel you wouldn't have the prosperity there you wouldn't have the spoil God wouldn't stand to gain much ten years ago in Israel you would have had mostly cooperative farms and a little growing industry today you really have quite uh, a fast-moving economy, a country with enviable resources, and uh, there is something for God to come and get at this time. It helps place the uh, prophecy in its time. All right, now the actual invasion. Look down to verse uh, 15. And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. <coughs> all right, this out of the north parts, three times... The north is mentioned, and in the Hebrew, all three times it has a qualifier, which means the remote north, or the uttermost north. All three times. The northernmost would be your good English for it. And uh, take a world globe, or look on a map tonight, and look north of Israel. You see little Lebanon is there. Uh, you'll pass through a part of Turkey. But the nation that you'll come to that is the uttermost north is Russia. Further north of that is the ice. Russia is it, to the north. Then draw a line, if you will, an exact north-south line with a ruler. Or place a ruler on there, pass it through Jerusalem and go due north, and you'll see that it passes through Moscow. It's that north. It's that exact. It is the civilized country, invading country, I'm saying civilized in terms of militarily prepared, to the uttermost north of Israel. All three times that it mentions the north, it, it has that qualifier. Okay, and it says they're coming on horses. We, we've said a word about that. And thou shalt come up against my people Israel, verse 16, as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days. There's your unmistakable placement of the prophecy. And I will bring thee against my land that the heathen may know me, when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. In other words, I'm going to use you, Gog, when I get done with you, the heathen are going to know who God is, is what he seems to be saying. And we'll see more on that as we go. All 
right? Thus saith the Lord God, Art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them? He says, Isn't that you I've been talking about? And he goes on, And it shall come to pass at the same time when God shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, and watch how he handles this, that my fury shall come up in my face, for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. And he really gets wound up here. So that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. And he's really, really furious. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood. And I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him. And overflowing rain and gray hailstones, fire and brimstone. Now that starts to sound like divine retribution. Now some people have said no nuclear uh, weapons. Uh, fire and brimstone would be Ezekiel's way of describing it. Either way is possible. If this war happens in the tribulation period, and uh, Dr. McCall and I put it close up to the front of the tribulation period, either within it or a tiny bit before, if it's in the tribulation period, it can be God just throwing fire down from heaven. The age of faith is over and God can show himself if he wishes. Uh, he would not do that in this age. This, this is the age for belief. Blessed are they who do not see and still believe. But should it be in the tribulation, he can and will, if he wishes. If it's before the tribulation, perhaps this is nuclear weapons. Now, all this is naturally speculation. It can be either one. The way things are uh, being talked about in the news today, it's reasonable. Uh, nuclear weapons, Israel has all but admitted. Nobody stepped up and said, we're waiting for them with nuclear ICBMs. But uh, they've all but admitted they have nuclear capability. And Israel's one nation doesn't have to worry about pushing any buttons. Uh, we don't push the red button because they'll push the button over there and we'll get wiped out. But brothers and sisters, when you're in Israel, you're going to get wiped out anyway is the idea. You haven't got much to lose. If they're coming from all sides, if Russia's coming and, and Libya maybe combined with Egypt coming and Ethiopia from the south and the Iranians from this side and they're all coming and the idea is once again to push the Jew into the sea, they're going to get the shock of their conquering lives. That's going to be the end of the career of many a conqueror. Because <laughs> Ethiopia from the south and the Iranians from this side, and they're all coming, and the idea is once again to push the Jew into the sea. They're going to get the shock of their conquering lives. That's going to be the end of the career of many a conqueror. Because they'll push the button. They don't care if there's a retaliation. They wouldn't care. If they don't push the button, they're going to get it anyway. We have a lot to protect. They have their promised land, but it's a small land, hard to defend. And when it comes to that, they would push the button. And so God pictures this rain, overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. And he says, thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. All right, how would they know that? Well... They'll see this mighty force against Israel, and they will see it, them beaten badly. Now, you'd really have to sit down and think about that. The two and a half million people of Israel versus 
those Arab uh, enemies with the addition of Ethiopia and Iran and Russia and Eastern Europe and the Cossacks all coming virtually in a circle. The only, the only direction no army would be coming from is the sea, the Mediterranean. And they beat them all. And there's no destruction in Israel involved. That's divine. Or that is, it needs an explanation. God is going to go on at the end of the next chapter and make it more clear, but he magnifies himself when the chosen people, when his people can survive that. He's promised them they'll survive. He'll not turn his back on Israel. And in this case, it's really miraculous. Anybody would say so. Well, he goes on in chapter 39. Therefore, thou son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and leave but the sixth part of thee. What a tremendous casualty rate. It's, it's 84%. The Russians suffered 75% uh, uh, casualties in the First World War, I believe it was. But in a way, we've learned to fight safer than that. Um, nobody, I don't think, has ever suffered 84% who was the invader. But uh, obviously, only one out of six uh, Russian soldiers will be spared. Uh, Verse 6, And I will send a fire on Magog, and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is come, and it is done, saith the Lord God. This is the day whereof I have spoken. In other words, this is the day I sanctify myself, magnify myself, so that the people know there really is a God. There would have to be a God for Israel to come out that way in an invasion of this size. And he goes on to talk about the, uh, what destruction there is of the invaders. There's, there's just none uh, mentioned in Israel. He talks about the dead and uh, all the weapons that they use and the fact that they're burned. Enough is left for scavenging birds and, and animals. Look at uh, verse 39.4. I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. All right, dead bodies of the invaders apparently will, will uh, strew the uh, fields and the mountains of the Holy Land. And look down at verse 12. Seven months shall the house of Israel be burying of them that they may cleanse the land. All right, the, the, the burial detail will occupy all the people. Verse 13 says, Yea, all the people of the land shall bury them. Some people will do this as a full-time job. If you look at verse 14, And they shall sever out men of continual employment, passing through the land to bury those that remain upon the face of the earth to cleanse it. Uh, remarkable. But when you have a force that size and you have killed five out of every six, a big problem becomes to get those bodies under the ground. And no detail is left out of this. It's, it's really stunning. But that they'll be so long with everybody working all the time just trying to uh, bury it. Now look, even, even tourists are supposed to watch for bones. Look at uh, verse 15. And the passengers that pass through the land, when any seeth a man's bone, then shall he set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. Haman Gog means uh, the multitude of Gog. Uh, it's a vast and, and a, a terrible cemetery that gets created of necessity, and they, they bury it all there.
This concludes Side A. Please turn over your cassette for Side B.